When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Inflation is a complex topic in that you can measure it in various different ways and come up with various different numbers. So it's not surprising that there may be a debate about the best way to combat inflation. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Jim Stanford, an economist and director of the Center for Future Work, about inflation, in particular about his view on the impacts of higher interest rates, which is the principal policy being used in Canada, as well as many other places around the world to bring inflation down. Stanford previously worked as an economist for Canada's largest private sector trade union, and he takes the view that higher interest rates are bad for workers. Of course, inflation is also bad for workers, and Stanford doesn't think we can just leave it alone. But as an economist, he would have preferred to see other policies, which we talked about in detail. As always, the interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Jim, thank you so much for coming on Down to Business Day to talk to me. It's my pleasure to join you, Gabe. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you about inflation and interest rates in terms of core inflation and headline inflation. Can you explain where both of those are and also what they are for people who may not know? Sure. Well, the uh, so-called all items inflation or headline inflation includes everything that consumers buy, all the different goods and services. And it's the number that gets uh, the headlines when Statistics Canada releases it uh, every month. And uh, we've had some good news uh, on headline inflation. It peaked at just over 8% year over year last summer. And it's come down almost half uh, since then. The latest uh, reading 4.4% for April. And it's almost certainly going to decline further in the next two or three months. Now, that's not as good news as it sounds for the reason that the main reason uh, headline inflation has come down is because of steep declines in energy costs. Uh, anyone who buys gasoline, for example, knows gas is a lot cheaper today than it was last summer. And other fossil fuel related products, natural gas, home heating oil in eastern Canada have also come way down since last summer. And that means that you can kind of uh, get a distorted impression based on the dramatic moves in uh, energy costs. So the Bank of Canada and others like to look at a, a different measure that they call core inflation that tries to strip out some of the more volatile items like energy, of course, but also food and a few other very uh, volatile products. And they think that gives maybe a better measure of uh, where the kind of overall momentum uh, of the economy is headed. Core inflation has come down, but not very much. Uh, it was more like 5% last summer. It's down to 4 and a bit percent now. So uh, inflation was never as bad as the headline number made it seem, but it hasn't improved as much as the headline number might make us think. Right. Energy costs came down. I want to pause and pivot to discuss the wage price spiral, which is, I think, related to the fear that inflation gets out of control mm -hmm. in that workers and unions seek higher wages to keep up with inflation. And then companies raise their prices and pass that cost on. And then inflation sort of becomes self-perpetuating and spirals. Why are you not as concerned about that as other economists may be? Well, economists of a certain vintage, uh, Gabe, and I include myself in that, 
Uh, we all learned about inflation like in the 1980s and 1990s when we were going to university. And that narrative that we were taught was dominated by the experience of the 1970s and the supposed wage price spiral that you just described that, you know, wage costs went up, companies were squeezed, they passed on higher costs to consumers, but then wages went up even more to cover the higher costs. Now, you know, we could actually have a debate about whether that actually describes what happened in the 70s or not, but that is the dominant uh, narrative that we were all taught. So when inflation roared back to life after the pandemic, you know, the folks at the Bank of Canada and, and other kind of conventional institutions went back to the textbooks, opened them up and said, OK, inflation is up. It must be driven by wages and we've got to crush it. Otherwise, we're going to have a wage price spiral. And that has absolutely dominated the explanation of inflation that we've heard from the Bank of Canada and dominated their policy response. Uh, the, the series of uh, eight interest rate increases now, uh, counting the, the one in early June, uh, is aimed squarely at trying to reduce the pace of job growth and suppress the rate of growth of wages so that Canadians don't have so much money to spend, and that will drag inflation back down to the 2% target. The problem is this inflationary cycle had nothing to do with wages in the first place. It was clearly an after effect of the pandemic, the supply chain disruptions, the fact that wholesale traders were completely out of inventory after the lockdowns, the broken international transportation system, container shipping costs went up tenfold, the energy price shock after the war in Ukraine. Those were all the things driving inflation not Canadian wages. And there were Canadian companies that took advantage of all those disruptions and fattened their bottom lines considerably. In fact, corporate profits uh, after tax rose to their highest share of GDP ever in 2022, in part because of that inflation. So to continue to blame labor costs and, and workers for demanding too much for a problem that they clearly didn't create is very misplaced in my mind. And it won't necessarily solve the problem by punishing workers with uh, higher interest rates and slower job growth. And this has been a sort of key thrust of some of the writings that you've done at the Center for Future Works website. This round of inflation started with the supply chain hiccups and people staying at home and spending more on durable goods. But I've also talked to economists who say that's all true, but interest rates are how you address this because they don't just affect workers' wages. They'll also affect businesses, right? Businesses are taking out a lot of debt and they'll scale back or guide their expectations for future growth based on what they think some of their prospects are. And if interest rates suggest there's going to be a slowdown in the economy, possibly even a recession, then they may end up working. Well, I think they will definitely work in the end if you suppress spending power in the economy enough, including households, of course, but also, as you point out, uh, businesses. Uh, businesses may scale back their investment plans because of high interest costs or because of their expectation that high interest rates will cause an economic slowdown and therefore undermine their market. So from both households and businesses, you, you uh, are likely to eventually get less spending if you raise interest rates high enough. In a way, it's like using other people in the economy as a hostage to solve an inflation problem that was caused by other factors. If you punish workers enough and slow down business investment enough, then yeah, eventually you'll have a, a recession and inflation will come down. But you weren't addressing the things that started the inflation in the first place. Instead, uh, you're creating offsetting impacts that reduce prices enough to compensate for the higher prices that we got from the pandemic. A good example here, uh, Gabe, is uh, housing. Housing, of course, is uh, an enormous component of consumer spending. Housing has been a, a huge source of inflationary pressure. 
Uh, we clearly don't have enough housing. We clearly have more Canadians who want housing than housing supply is available for them. And that's one of the reasons housing prices have shot up so much. Now, in the Bank of Canada's storyline, inflation results from too much spending power. So uh, we're going to increase interest rates so consumers don't have so much to spend. And it will make it harder for them to access credit. And you'll see a downturn, uh, presumably, in uh, real estate prices, which we have seen in, in some cities. But what else happens? With high interest rates, nobody's interested in building new supply. Developers uh, scale back their expansion plans, and it, it changes the business case for building new housing. And then on the rent side, because more people can't afford to buy a house with high interest rates, more people go into the rental market. Plus, you've got, of course, the direct impact of higher debt service charges on mortgages, which is in the CPI. That's part of inflation. So when you look at the shelter component of the consumer price index, it's accelerating. It's not falling. And the high interest rates are hurting demand in some ways, but they're hurting supply even more. So the imbalance between demand and supply that the Bank of Canada worries about is actually getting worse. So in this regard, misdiagnosing the cause of the problem and assuming that it's resulting from too many Canadians having jobs and making too much money leads the bank to do things that are actually counterproductive. Uh, they're actually increasing inflation in the shelter component, which is very important, through their own anti-inflation medicine. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. What you're saying makes logical sense about higher interest rates mean there's going to build less supply of housing and housing is driving inflation. The thing is, the Bank of Canada and all central banks, they must recognize that too. And, and that means eventually they're going to have to bring interest rates down soon because their goal is to get inflation under control. But so it, it sounds like the policies you're arguing wouldn't come from a central bank. They would come from working with other governments to clear up supply chains and things like that. Policies that are beyond the control of the central bank. I agree, Gabe. I think that we have relied too much on the central bank as the one and only way to try to manage inflation. And we've given them one and only tool to do it with, namely the economy-wide interest rate, which is a, a giant hammer. You know, And the problem is if your toolbox only has a hammer in it, well, everything starts to look like a nail. And any problem you see related to inflation, all you can do is pull out that hammer. And in a way, that's, that's what the bank uh, has done. I think that they recognized that the causes of this inflation were, in fact, unique in many ways and related to the pandemic. But they, A, probably don't know what else to do about it, and B, may feel that some of those policy levers, such as addressing housing supply issues, for example, are beyond its purview. And, and they're right, you know. So this is where we need a more multidimensional strategy for understanding inflation and controlling it. If I could go back in time, uh, I would suggest that the federal government and provincial governments take some immediate action at the beginning of this inflationary upsurge to try to limit the extent to which those unique post-pandemic factors sparked the impulse of higher prices that since has been kind of cascading through the economy. One of them uh, would have been price controls in certain areas to prevent those price upsurges in those unique areas, such as energy, for example. There are other countries in the world that said, mm, we aren't going to allow energy prices to increase so much, even if the futures market in Chicago says that the oil price should indeed be $120 US a barrel. There's no fundamental economic rationale for that. And we're not going to let 
the whole economy be disrupted and distorted by uh, those energy prices. So uh, let's cap uh, some of those prices. The same could go in a sector like housing. We have some price controls already on certain types of energy. We have rent controls in many parts of Canada. Uh, some countries, even in the UK right now, they're debating price caps on essential foodstuffs as a way of trying to help bring down food inflation. So that would be one thing to do. Another thing to do, if in fact you couldn't control the initial run-up in prices, but you could then try to offset it through redistributive measures uh, after the fact. So think about an excess profits tax. Industries like energy, the oil and gas sector's profits rose a thousand percent, a thousand percent between 2019 and 2022. And that is the flip side of the coin of the biggest single inflationary impulse that we were dealing with. So let's capture back some of that surplus and then use it to offset the impact on consumers of higher energy prices. And you could do the same in, in other super profitable industries. Third, you could also be taking measures to try and address some of those supply pinch points that were very acute after uh, the pandemic uh, in things like uh, transportation, logistics, uh, rolling out uh, renewable energy sources uh, so that we aren't uh, so affected by the ups and downs of the global oil futures market. Housing, obviously another area where you could address uh, the supply points. These are all things that aren't done by the central bank. They're done by government. Now, the central bank is part of government. We shouldn't forget that. And at the end of the day, I think there is a responsibility on government to have a broader view of uh, what's causing inflation and a broader set of tools that they can use to address it that, that I think in this case would have been more efficient and fairer. One of the things that's interesting to me, though, about the arguments that you're making, like price controls, which I think they have implemented in some places like Germany, other people I've read about who proposed those were pilloried for that. What I'm getting at is when you move into government policies, which I don't think we've done price controls in Canada for quite some time, or tax excess corporate profits, these would be highly politically controversial. And neither of us can go back in time to say what would have happened. But that's almost beside the point in a way. One thing I wonder about, you know, we live in a very polarized time, and it seems like we've come to rely on interest rates and central banks because they have an almost apolitical standing that we can all agree on. There's so many things in this country that we can't agree on, like carbon tax, price controls, how to tax corporate profits, et cetera. But it seemed like there was still a consensus around the idea that if we raised interest rates, we could get inflation under control. How do you see this shaking out if you prove to be right and that we have to focus more on policies What's your thought about how the kind of political dialogue around the economy evolves after this episode? Yeah, th those are really, really rich points. And you're quite right. Any of those other measures I proposed would be fiercely controversial, uh, mostly because the people who would be negatively affected by them, like oil companies, uh, would do everything they could to prevent that from happening. Um, now, don't assume that we don't do those things. We actually do. We've got lots of price controls in different parts of our economy. Uh, including on many different forms of energy. Uh, electricity costs and natural gas transmission costs are all regulated for obvious reasons. Uh, you know, in a way, the Pandora's box is open there. Uh, we have rent controls, as I mentioned, in many parts of Canada. They're, they're not strong enough, uh, frankly, but uh, we have the principle there. Uh, we also have had excess profits taxes. The federal government implemented an excess profits tax on the banks after the pandemic because the bank profits were so extraordinary, in part thanks to the aid that the federal government pumped into the uh, economy. So these principles are not unknown. These are not kind of utopian ideas, and other countries have done them more. But you're right, it would be a huge political battle to move that way. 
And I think the core truth that you've identified is that we've come to rely on or the system has come to rely on central banks to do the tough medicine part of of macroeconomic policy. And not so much because it's apolitical. I don't think it is apolitical. There are absolutely winners and losers from how the bank does this. But because it's been removed from the sphere of democracy, we often refer to the central bank as being, quote unquote, independent. I think that's a misnomer. What the central bank is, is unelected. They aren't independent. They obviously follow what's happening. They work very closely with the private financial industry, and they have a set of views about how the economy functions and should function that is, I think, quite one-sided, not independent. But because they aren't elected and their day-to-day operations are not subject to the normal accountability of democratic governance, then they can get away with, you know, delivering tough medicine that hurts millions and millions of Canadians who might be outraged about it, but have been convinced that there's nothing they can do about it. And I think that sense of powerlessness in the face of this undue, unaccountable authority coming from the central bank is open to challenge right now. I think we are at a moment where the sort of received wisdom about the virtues of a a so-called independent central bank targeting a certain magic inflation number in Canada, 2%, and being given the power to do it no matter what. I won't say they don't care about the harm of a recession, but they understand full well that their job is to deliver that pain. And because they're unelected, they can deliver it more than an elected government can. And my point is only just that in an era of polarization, there may be some merit in having someone who can make some kind of policy to address a problem when there's this gridlock on all these other issues. So, I mean, looking ahead, I guess what I would ask you is, what do you see coming in terms of the ultimate impact of these interest rates that you're paying attention to? Right. Well, I I think we're at, in a way, a a bit of a a turning point in this uh, battle against inflation. We've seen the moderation of some of the most pressing uh, sources of inflation right after the pandemic. So supply chains uh, have been repaired. Inventories have been rebuilt. Shipping costs have come back down to their pre-pandemic norms. Even energy prices uh, have come down a lot. So all of those things are causing the moderation and headline inflation that we talked about. But now there's a part two of this whole story which is that average Canadians understand their real standard of living has been undercut by the inflation of the last two years. Wages lagged way behind prices during this period. Average real wages adjusted for prices have fallen by about 4%. And as I mentioned, corporate profits have risen to their highest stage in history in Canada as a share of GDP. So the typical Canadian is pissed off about this and wants to repair that decline in their standard of living. So they have been demanding wage increases to try and keep up with inflation, not just inflation today, but also to make up for some of the inflation that happened in the last two years. And I think they're quite legitimate in demanding that. Earlier this year, uh, Gabe, starting in February, we actually saw the two lines cross. For the first time since this inflation started, wages are now growing a little bit faster year over year than prices were. Wages are going up about 5% year over year and inflation, as I mentioned, is close to 4% and will probably fall below 4%. So I think this is going to reinforce the fear at the Bank of Canada of a wage price spiral. And they're going to double down on their efforts to try and increase unemployment and suppress future wage growth. But Canadians are determined to try and make up for the ground that they've lost and win back some of those excess profits that have shown up in the highest corporate profit margins ever. 
And uh, this is, in a way, is, I think, where the gloves are going to come off. And the Bank of Canada, I think, signaled with this latest interest rate increase that it's prepared to tighten further, despite the signs of uh, growing macroeconomic weakness. They're not happy with a 4% headline inflation rate. They want it to get back to the 2% target. And they are now even more identifying wages as the core problem, even though at this point, the wages are just trying to catch up. So we're going to have a classic distributional conflict that has to be managed in the next year or two as we see whether uh, inflation does get back to 2% and whether it takes a painful recession and very unfair distributional shifts in order to get it back to 2%. I know this is a dismal topic, uh, but economists are known as the dismal science. And these days, we fully deserve that moniker. Well, always great to hear another point of view. And mostly the economists I've interviewed on this have come from big banks. Mm. And we've never gotten into these issues of wages and, you know, the wage price spiral. I only sort of recently started hearing about that, you know, at the beginning of this inflationary episode, when they were just talking about raising interest rates, I really didn't hear anyone raise that. And I still don't totally understand. I think like unionization levels must play a huge role in it, right? I mean, the unionization levels in the 70s, I believe were way above what they are today. In the, in the private sector in particular, yes, uh, unionization has come down. And I would say the kind of militance, uh, if you like, of trade unions uh, has come down. If you look at things like uh, frequency of strikes, for example, now it has picked up a bit uh, in the last year or two in Canada, but it's a tiny fraction, less than a tenth of how frequent strikes were in the 1970s. And in the 1970s, workers really had the upper hand, uh, to tell you the truth. Wages were growing faster than prices throughout that inflationary episode, and profit margins were at all-time lows in the 70s. Both of those are the exact opposite today, which is why I think this infatuation with the wage price spiral is quite misplaced. Well, I want to just say thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Gabe. That was Jim Stanford, an economist and director of the Center for Future Work. Thanks for listening to Down to Business and supporting our show. Bryce Hall composed and performed the original music, designed the logo, and produced this episode. Pamela Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return with more episodes of Down to Business. We're playing with different formats, and we're going to release some double episodes that run a little bit over the normal 30-minute length, which means we may release fewer episodes overall but we'll definitely be back with more episodes over the course of the summer, so stay tuned. And in the meantime, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.